Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Shlach Lecha this morning. We're in Numbers, the book of Numbers. And um, the minute we open the book of Numbers, chapter 1, verse 1, I'm waiting for this portion um, because I know this is what's coming. This is the moment that they lose it all, this generation. Um, and I always feel a little sick to my stomach when we're going to start shlach lecha. <laughs> and so um, it's, hard, it's hard when you know how the tragedy ends, <laughs> you know, to start reading it again. Um, but this year, I'm feeling a little bit differently in terms of my relationship to this story um, and usually I have focused, not usually, but sometimes I have focused with you when we're in this part of the story, um, uh, this part of the Parsha, the first triennial reading, uh, I have often focused on w- what is the big deal, right? Like what's the failure? Why do they get such an incredibly harsh punishment? And that's often the question the rabbis ask. Many commentators ask that question. If you're unfamiliar with the story, you'll know in a minute what I'm talking about. Um, but this, this year, many commentators jumped off the page in a different way to me. And some of it was brought to me by the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, which you should all check out. Um, they have a free sit every day and um, the meditation is, is guided towards the Parsha. So there's a little teaching before the meditation. Um, and so many teachers are, are bringing forward a part of the story that I haven't always really focused on. So that's, that's what we're going to do today. And that part of the story is really about perception. So rather than kind of the consequence, um, this year I really want to focus more on this whole idea of scouting, this whole idea of being sent to see, being sent to evaluate, and the perspective that each of these folks uh, or groups of people bring back, and then what the people do with their perception. So here we are, chapter 13, verse 1 of the book of Numbers, um, starting the Parsha Shlach, although some people call it Shlach Lecha, because if you look at verse 2, those first words in Hebrew, Shlach Lecha. All right, so, el Moshe limor. so God, something new and different. God speaks to Moshe, saying, Shlach lecha anashim, vayaturu et eretz kana'an asher ani noten livnei Yisrael, ish echad, ish echad, limatel votav tishlechu kol nasivahem. So send people, vayaturu et eretz kana'an, that they should scout the land of Kana'an, which I'm giving to the Israelite people. Send one person, so you see where it says ish echad, ish echad, one, one, from each of their uh, ancestral homes, right? The only ones that are going to be sent are chieftains. So if we look at this this, uh, way of phrasing in verse 2, shlach lecha, we already see something interesting. Those of you who know lech lecha, when God speaks to Avraham and says to Avraham, go, it's this weird construction in Hebrew, lech lecha. Lecha means to you. So it doesn't really mean go to you. Of course, the spiritual tradition goes there. It's kind of this emphasis word, but it is an odd construction referring back to the self in some way. And so the spiritual tradition goes here, obviously, is going to go there. Shlach lecha, send you to you, extend yourself. But the literal translation would be something more like, and, and there's commentary on this too, shlach lecha anashim, send for yourselves scouts to scout the land of Canaan. Why? Why do they need to play with this? First of all, why does it need to be written like this? It is a little tangled. Um, and the, but the other question is, why do they need scouts? God has already said, this is a good land. This is a land flowing with milk and honey. God's been bragging about this place uh, forever. And, um, and they remember this place. They're, they're originally from this place, for the descendants of Abraham and Sarah, even though Abraham and Sarah are not from there, right? So 
Um, why send scouts? And so that's one of the reasons everyone looks to this construction, shlach lecha anashim. And one of the answers is it's not, it's not because God doesn't know what the land is like and that it's, it's wonderful and they should very, be very excited about inheriting it and conquering it. It's shlach lecha anashim. Send scouts for you because you have to get it. The Israelites have to get it. What, what this land is all about and that it's wonderful and conquerable and to get excited about this project, to get excited because they're going to have to fight. They're going to have to fight for this. And so um, God is trying to motivate them, say some of our teachers, by saying, send for yourself scouts so that they can go. And who, who's going? Big shots are going, right? The, the princes, the leaders of the tribes are going, not Nebisha, you know, yeshiva bukhers. That is not who's being sent. The leadership is being sent. Why? Why would you risk your leaders on a mission? Um, it's because leaders have a lot of influence and leaders have a lot of power. So you send the big shots so that you, you can imagine the people will be listening much more carefully to what they say because they are the leadership and they are trusted. They're the elite. Okay. We've gotten through one verse. Verse three. So Moshe does that. He sends them from Paran, uh, right, to the, uh, from the Midbar Paran, the wilderness of Paran, um, all of them, Roshevne Israel. They were all leaders of the people of Israel. And here are their names. We're not going to go through all of their names, but it's from each one of the tribes. Here are the names of who went. And these, These are the names of the people that Moshe sent to, to scout the land. So, but Moshe changed the name of uh, Hoshea, to Yehoshua. So this guy, his name is Hoshea bin Nun, and Moshe changes his name to Yehoshua. We are not told why. So when Moshe sends them out to scout the land, he said to them, go up there into the Negev uh, to the Tahar, to, you know, to where it's mountainous. Or itemitaaretz, and you're to go and see the, and you're to go look, right, and see mahi, what is she, what is it, this land, and the people that live on it, meaning on the land, are they strong, right? Are they few? Are they many? Um, that these are the questions they're supposed to go in with as they observe. And what, what about the land, the country that they live in? Are the towns they live in open or fortified? Is the soil rich or poor? Is it wooded or not? And take pains to bring back some of the fruit of the land. Now it happened, this is good news, to be the season of the first ripe grapes. Vaya'alu, and they went up. Vayaturu, and they scouted at Haaretz, the land. Mimid Bartzin, Ad Rechov, Levo Hamat. From the Mid Bartzin, the wilderness of Tzin, all the way to Rechov at a place called Levo Hamat. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron, where Achiman, Shesha, and Talmei, the Anakites, lived. Now, Hebron was founded seven years before Tzon of Egypt. We're supposed to know something about that, but we don't, because we are not living 3,000 years ago. Vayavo ad Nachal Eshkol, so they come all the way to the Wadi Eshkol. A Nachal is a river, because I know Rita's going to go, wait a minute, Rabbi, that word is Nachal. That's a river. It's a river when it's running wet. When it's dry, it's a Wadi. So it's a, this, the English text is assuming that it's dry at this point. So they reach the Vadi, Eshkol, and they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes. It was so big that it had to be borne on a carrying frame by two of them. 
and some pomegranates and figs. If you have seen the Kedem wine bottle, their label shows two guys carrying a huge cluster of grapes on poles. That is directly from this line of Torah, that the single cluster of grapes was so large it had to be carried on a frame by two people. All right. At the end of 40 days... So they returned from scouting the land after 40 days. Um, of course it's 40 days, right? Like what, what else is it going to be? How do we know the time of completion is here? They've done a full and complete assessment. They've done a full job of it. How do we know? It's 40 days. So they go to, they come and they go right to Moshe, Aharon, and all the Israelite community, right? And they made their report and the, they showed all the community the fruit of the land. And they said, we went to the land that you told us to go to. It does indeed flow with milk and honey. And this is an example of its fruit. Milk and honey does not mean cow milk and bee honey. Milk and honey, this is about date honey. And this is about goat milk. So goat milk and date honey, what does that say? It says that this is a land that can sustain, if it's flowing with goat milk, it can sustain flocks. And these are semi-nomadic pastoralists, our people at this point, who are moving into Israel. So they need a place that can support their flocks. And, uh, and also date honey, if there's a lot of date honey, it means there's enough water that things will grow. Um, that will feed people as well as shade and protect uh, animals in the hot um, Middle Eastern sun. So we all know that, uh, that things being green and, and produce growing, this, this is one of the main things that you need to be successful uh, in a place in that region. And this is an example of her fruit. So they bring this huge cluster of grapes. So this should be good news. Everyone should be jumping up and down. This is great. This is so exciting. Flowing with milk and honey. It's amazing how big the grapes are. The pomegranates are fantastic. Oh my God, try the olives. You got to have some of the olives, right? It, this day should just be so excited. But we get this word at the beginning of 28 that is our cue that this is all going to hell in a handbasket fast. What is that word? FS. What does FS literally mean in Hebrew? It means nothing, zero. FS is zero. So one of our commentators said, um, it's like you hit the delete key on the, on the computer, FS. It just all goes away. Everything we just said, FS, you hit the delete key. So think that way when you see this word it's an alarm word for us because they're saying good stuff now we know something else is coming fs but delete 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 the people who inhabit the country are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large moreover we saw the anakites there exclamation 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 so anak is the word used here um, Anakites, we're not exactly sure, but it has something to do with um, giants. That these are, you know, legendary, huge people. Amalek Yoshev Ba'aretz. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Who's this? 29, verse 29. Amalek is there. We know about Amalek, don't we? So, you know, the, the, the people who attacked Israel from behind and took they're vulnerable and they're aged and they're weak and they're sick. Amalek is there, right? And Hittites and Jebusites and Amorites. Then there's Canaanites by the sea, by the Jordan. And um, you, you can tell that they are trying to communicate how powerful the people of the region and their cities are. Vayahaz Kalev And Caleb hushed the people before Moses. 
and said, let us by all means go up and we shall gain possession of it for we shall surely overcome it. So Caleb jumps in to hush the people. What's very interesting about this text is we've heard nothing from the people. We don't hear anything yet about the people. We're just hearing from the scouts right now. So that's weird. Maybe, says one of our commentators, maybe Caleb is anticipating what's going to happen with the people. Maybe Caleb is like Moshe and knows this group and knows exactly where they're going to go once they hear this speech. And so jumps in before they even start. He jumps in to quiet them. Okay. 31. Amy? Amy? Uh, Yeah. You know when you give a sermon (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> or when I know when I give a talk to a lot of people, you can tell by their body language whether they are listening or whether they are unhappy with what you're saying. Right. And it's possible that Caleb just literally saw their body language and their muttering uh, to say, you know, hold on there, that, that he got that information because he's used to being in front of a lot of people. So that's great. So he already recognizes their, their unspoken response because he, he's good at this. He's a good communicator. So that's a great point, Bob. The, the other thing is when I'm giving a sermon and I start to watch body language, what am I watching for? I'm watching for is the reaction the one I want in response to what I'm trying to get people to feel, Right. So if they start squirming, sometimes that's exactly what I'm trying to do is make people uncomfortable because then I'm going to resolve it or whatever. Or if they're getting really excited, it's like, yes, I'm trying to fire them up. It's possible Caleb is also responding to what he knows is the, is the mood and the, the, the emotion and the, and the frame of mind that, that the speakers are trying to put the people in. He recognizes their agenda by their tone, by what they're choosing to report on and not report on, uh, using the word FS, but, you know, and so it's possible Caleb as a good communicator both reads the crowd, but also reads the scouts and what these leaders are coming back and saying to the people when he had such a different, right? He would have come back with a much different message. He can tell, wait a minute, this is not what we're supposed to be trying to do with them. So, but the guys who had gone up with him, right, said, we cannot attack that people for it is stronger than we are. Too strong for us. And they spread calumnies. You got to love some of these translations. They spread calumnies about the Isra- to, among the Israelites about the land that they had scouted, saying, the country that we traversed and scouted is one that devours its settlers, All the people that we saw in it are men of great size. Now, if you just take that statement on its face, how can that possibly both of those be true at the same time? If this is a land that devours its settlers, how can all the people living in the land be people of great size? That doesn't make any sense, right? So they're even internally contradicting themselves with their report. Visham, and they're not done. Misham, and there, Ra'inu Nephilim. We saw the Nephilim there. B'nai Anak, right? Mina Nephilim. The Anakites are part of the Nephilim people. V'nahi be'einenu kechagavim. V'chen hayinu be'einehem. And we looked like grasshoppers in our eyes. And so we were in their eyes, right? And so we looked like grasshoppers to ourselves next to them. And that's how we appeared in their eyes. Chapter 14. And the whole community broke out into loud cries and the people wept all that night and all the Israelites, here we go. Are we shocked people? Look what happens next. All the Israelites railed against Moses and Aaron. 
What do we Jews do when we're unhappy or we're afraid or we're anxious? We turn on our leaders. And by the way, anthropologically speaking, um, oppressed peoples chew up and spit out their leaders. So all people that are suffering and feel marginalized and depressed, they turn on their leaders and they chew them up. It's kind of like they just project onto their leaders all of their own pain. If only we had died in the land of Egypt, the whole community shouted at them. Or if only we might die in this wilderness. Okay, right? What's their punishment? God says, you want to die in this wilderness? Done. Done and done. You want something to cry about? I'll give you something to cry about. You want to die in this midbar? No problem. Consider it done. Sorry, that was me talking for God, um, but they're still complaining. Um, verse three, Why would God take us out into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our children carried off. Here we go. This is not good, people. This is not good. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Mitzrayim? For us to go back to Egypt. And so each turned to the other and said, let us go back to Egypt. And Aaron and Moshe fell on their faces before all of the people of Israel. And Joshua Binun and Kalev Ben Yifuna, the two that came back with a good report from the scouts, um, they tore their clothes. When, when do we tear our clothes? We tear our clothes in mourning. We tear our clothes when someone close to us has died. Caleb and Joshua know something super bad is coming. And all the people uh, said, Oh, sorry, this is Kalev and uh, Yeshua talking. The land that we scouted, it is a very, very good land, right? And so they say, indeed, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. You must not rebel against God. God is happy with us. God is giving this to us. Have no fear of the people of the country. They are our prey. God is going to protect us. Have no fear of them. What happens? <laughs> and the whole community said, let's kill them. With stones. But the presence of the divine appeared in the tent of meeting to all the Israelites, right? And God said, so that stops them from stoning Joshua and Caleb and presumably Moshe and Aharon who are busy falling on their faces because they know, they know they're in serious trouble with a mob that's about to turn seriously ugly. And then we have the response from God and we know what that response is. Um, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on the response. We're going to go back and look at our text a little more closely than we have even thus far. So send for yourself scouts. The rabbis believe this is already a test. This is already, huh? look, at, look at Robert Gorin nodding. This is already a test. God is already testing them. I've promised you this land. I've told you it's going to be okay. I've told you, yes, you're going to need to fight. You're going to have to take some risk and you're going to have to make a lot of effort on your side to achieve it. Yes, but I'm going to take care of it. I, the one who defeated Pharaoh and the entire Egyptian army and opened the sea for you. You remember that? That was me. That God, me, is going to take care of you beating up the Canaanites, all those people you just mentioned, no problem. Send for yourself scouts and check it out. Already say the rabbis, God is testing them. And they fail the first test by saying, okay, 
right? They should have said, we don't need scouts. You've told us it's going to be okay. You've assured us we're going to be fine. You've assured us it's a land flowing with milk and honey. What do we need scouts for? Let's just go. So according to the rabbis, um, they fail the first test. I don't know what we want to say about a God who sets them up like that, but um, there you go. So send for yourself scouts. Um, Rashi, Rashi says that Rashi's a little more generous with the reading, that they shouldn't need scouts because God has already made all these promises and already described it for them and already told them it's going to be okay. But Rashi's a little more generous in his reading. And he says, okay, you shouldn't need scouts, but you're human beings. And so I get it. God is like, I get it. You're going to need to see for yourselves. So, and you're going to need this reassurance because that's who y'all are. I know you. And so God allows Moshe to send scouts. And some teaching around this is that they needed their leaders to go because God wanted the leaders to see for themselves. God needed the leadership to be able to come back and say, oh my gosh, what Moshe has been telling us isn't even close. It is so amazing, right? And so just that excitement that comes back and lights up more excitement in the people is a different kind when you've got your leadership going and coming back all excited. Um, you know what I mean? Like when, when the bus pulls up to the hotel in Israel and I'm like, oh my, and I go in and I come back out to the bus and go, this place is amazing. Everybody wakes up and gets a little more excited about schlepping their luggage right into the lobby. So it's, we, 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 it's contagious, right? The excitement of our leaders is contagious. When you see a, a brilliant orator talk, a politician that you love and you love their policies and you love what they're trying to accomplish when they talk and they're all fired up, it's exciting and it gets us motivated. And so, so some of our interpreters want to say, that's what's going on here. God knows how people work. And so God wants the leaders to get the people fired up and get them excited um, because they're going to have to fight. And these are slaves and they're, they're, it's not easy for them. And God knows that and has compassion for that and says, okay, so send their leaders and let their leaders come back and get them all excited, right? Ramban, Nachmanides, a medieval Jewish mystic, um, Ramban says, no, that's really not what's going on here. What's going on here is God doesn't want the people relying on miracles. God doesn't want them relying on, don't worry, I'll take care of it. God wants them to have to figure some of this out for themselves. God wants them to be practical. God wants them to scout the land to say, okay, well, if we come in this way and we bring our troops up that way, like they, that they should start thinking strategically. They're going to have to figure out how to do this. God has assured them they're going to win, but they have to be involved in their own getting of the land. If they keep relying on God and God's miracles, that is going to set up a terrible, terrible situation, which is true. Think about it. I'm not going to take my kid to the hospital because I trust God. God will intervene. God will save my child. God will heal her. God forbid. Right? So that kind of magic thinking about, well, God will fix this. God will do it. God will take care of it. God wants to wean them from that kind of thinking. Because that's what happened with the plagues. That's what happened with the sea. That's what happened with Pharaoh and his army. So shouldn't that happen now? Isn't that how it's supposed to go? Isn't God supposed to just keep feeding us and doing miracles for us and giving us mana and making rainfall and making everything fine? No, that's not how it's going to be from now on, people. But they, So this was the moment God starts to try to wean them off of that way of seeing the world and, and getting them involved. Uh, my wonderful, amazing resource and teacher, Aviva Zorenberg. I love her. You know how much I love her. It's so depressing what she writes, but I think it's really accurate. She writes that they have always wanted to die. They've always wanted to go back to Egypt rather than face the, the possibility of death. They'd rather be dead then face the possibility of death. Think about that for a second. That's intense. They're always, they're so afraid that they're afraid of being afraid. 
They're afraid of their fear. That fear, their feeling of fear scares them so badly, they'd rather be dead. And that, that they're always coming up against this, always. We've seen it so many times, she says. And, and she says, returning to Egypt is in effect a core fantasy of the people. Sooner or later, in reaction to the fear of war, it will inevitably disrupt the project of the whole exodus. And indeed, when the people cry, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt, they give a newly political expression to an old desire, till now never so fully articulated. Something has been waiting to crystallize. Even God's strategy, bringing them roundabouts, right? Remember God leads them in the long way so that they don't see any war because then God's afraid they're going to cut and run? Has been able only to delay an inevitable crisis. The change of heart that God foresaw is realized in this moment in the story of the spies. The roots of the narrative therefore reach back into the past. Its impact is felt, moreover, far into the future. According to a classic Mishnah, this narrative is dated to guess what date? Anybody want to guess? Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. That's how big a moment this is. According to the Mishnah, this is the ninth of Av, because that is going to be the date throughout Jewish history that means catastrophe. And it's still what we observe as the day of catastrophe, right? The ninth of Av. It's the day the temple will be destroyed. It's, it's, there's just so much that's going to happen on Tisha B'Av. And this is the first, according to the Mishnah, this is the first thing that happens on Tisha B'Av, because even the Mishnah understands what kind of a moment this is existentially what this means, that it undoes the entire enterprise of the Exodus. The whole point of God bringing them out of Egypt was to bring them into the promised land. That was the project. Their fear, their fear, even of fear, of feeling fear is so big that they wreck the project of the Exodus. All right. Anything so far? We good? Mehmet has his hand raised. Um, I keep thinking about the scouts um, and how important they are in this critical time of um, the Jewish people. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out what, what qualities they might possess to go out there into um, this new land and uh, bring back very important knowledge that will prepare the Jewish people into the next chapter of their history. And, and I think about today, the scouts, the leaders of our society, and nowadays it's probably the doctors who tell us how how we have to prepare for this new uh, chapter of uncertainty and unknowns and so much in our lives. And if if you look at the society today, people are, there is a bunch that discusses, uh, th- that says, no, we don't want to wear the mask. And then the rest say, well, are you crazy? You know, you're risking all of us. So knowledge and science and um they matter so much in these critical times. And the scouts, with the right qualities to assess the situation and to prepare large masses of uh, humanity, they're so critical even today. That, that's what I keep thinking when we were reading the text. So thank you for that, Mehmet, because that's exactly why I want to focus on perception today, right? So the leaders... The leaders have a huge responsibility in this moment. The leaders are the ones saying, okay, here's the science, people, right? Here's the science. The science is what the science is. The question is, how do the scouts perceive the science? Kalev and Yoshua come back and say, wear your masks. 
have everybody in your family wear masks, wash your hands, stop touching your face, wash your vegetables and fruits, and we will get through this. And it's going to be okay. We can manage this. We can flatten the curve. It's going to be okay. We'll, we'll find a vaccine eventually, right? Or there won't be enough hosts and the, and the virus will dissipate because there just won't be enough hosts to sustain it, right? That's two of them. What did and- 10 of the scientists come back saying? This is an unprecedented coronavirus. We have no idea how to deal with this. This is absolutely something we've never seen before. This is, you know, there's nothing we can do. You know, masks don't really help. That's garbage. Don't believe the other scientists. They don't know what they're talking about. Right? So 10 of them came back and th- their perception of what they saw, what they encountered is, is translated to the people in terms of panic, reasons they should be afraid. So this is the responsibility. This is why God gets so mad right? The character God in our story gets so angry because it's like you totally ruined. You totally went back on your responsibility as a leader. You didn't wear your mask. Not only did you not come back wearing your mask to model for the people how to get through this, you told them they're all going to die. You told them it's pointless. It's useless. We can't fight this thing. It's an invisible enemy and we can't fight it, right? So, they completely fall down on the leadership job. So you're 100% right. This story is in large part, the scouts is about leadership. And what is the responsibility of our leaders? It's to inspire us. That's what God was sending them to do. And Moshe was counting on them to come back to do. And Caleb and Joshua were trying to do. They understood their obligations. And the others completely fell down on the leadership job. Let's, let's say even they really were scared and they really didn't like what they saw. First of all, who did they go running to as soon as they got back? This is the other place the rabbis go. They, who did they go running to? They went running to Moshe, Aharon, and who else? Kol Adat B'nai Israel, the entire people of Israel. If they were that flipped out, By what they saw, what should they have done, say the rabbis? Again, a failure of leadership. They should have taken Moshe and Aharon aside and said, we need to have a conversation. We are seriously concerned about what we saw. And if we're really going to take this promised land, you need to go talk to the big one, that big thing that scares us at Sinai. You need to have another kind of conversation because we don't see a way for this to happen. But they didn't. They went right to the people. They went right to the people and and paralyzed them. They they gave this report that terrified the people. This again is a failure for the rabbis, a failure of leadership. Because even though a lot of it is factual, you know that their their cities might be big, the people might be big there, right? Um, it's another thing to call yourselves grasshoppers. Right. And so we appeared to them. And the, in the Midrash, I just love it that in the Midrash, that's the moment God loses it. God loses it when they said, and so we appeared to them. Because God says, all right, you, you look like grasshoppers in your own eyes. Okay, whatever. There's nothing I can do about that. That's your self-perception. You have some self-esteem issues, whatever. Um, but you're going you're gonna to say how you appeared to them? How do you know I didn't make you look like malachim, angels to them? How dare you? Out of your own fear and your own stuff, how dare you make assumptions about how someone else saw you? That's now you're exaggerating. Now you're coming out of the crazy. Now you're coming out of slavery and oppression and pain. And that's where God draws the line in the Midrash. I find that very interesting. Right. It's not at the report. You know, it's not at any of that stuff. It's at the moment they say, and so we appeared to them. It's one thing for me to feel like a failure. It's one thing for me to feel like I can't do this. I'm not good enough. Imposter syndrome. If they ever find out, they're going to not let me be their senior rabbi anymore. Blah, 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 blah. All that stuff that we go through. It's one thing for me to think that. For me to say, and you know what? They think the same thing. 
they see me as an imposter, right? So, so that's, that's how, how twisted it is for them that they project that, e- that that's how the people of the land saw them. We may not think that's a big deal, but I think it's very interesting that the rabbis do. The rabbis go to that exact moment. All right. Oof. Okay. Anything else so far? There's so much. Yeah. Amy. Yeah. Why? Um, first of all, leaders know the people they lead. So 10 of them, you know, if you have 10 people saying, you know, shelter at home and, you know, two people say you can get away with masks if you take this vaccine, if you take this vaccine, uh, you know, by and large, the crew is going to believe, you know, the, the weight of the scientific evidence. But but what I was wondering, going back to what you said before, you know, God is is pretty much all knowing. You know, God understands. Why did he even suggest to send leaders if he had a sense that this is a relatively um, psychologically fearful tribe and the leaders that he has are psychologically fearful. Uh, you know, why do that? Uh, you're setting yourself up for, uh, uh, for failure. Right. So a, a positive reading, so that, that's one reading, right, which is the sad, tragic reading, is God knows what's going to happen but can't prevent it, right, because God gives us free will. And so it's sad. It's just sad all the way around. The parent that knows their kid is going to, right, do, do something that is going to be really disappointing and yet can't stop them because then you take away the child's agency, um, so that's, it's, it, we can read it tragically that way. The other way to read it is, is more hopeful and optimistic. And that is that God knows their tendencies. God knows who they are. God understands that, but keeps hoping, but really keeps hoping this people can get it together. Really believes if I keep working on their behalf, they will get it. I'll give them Torah, I'll give them mana, I'll give them quail, I'll give their thirst. And like, if I just keep showing up as a loving, supportive parent, they will get it and they will fledge and they will fly this time, right? And so I'm going to have them send their leaders and they'll see how great this land is that I'm giving them. They'll see and they'll come back and they'll excite their people and then, you know, God keeps, and it's tragic that way too. God keeps hoping and they continue to disappoint. And, and, and in that sense, th- these are the times I feel bad for God in the Torah. If God is being hopeful, if God is setting them up, well, forget about it. But if, if God is truly hopeful that they're going to get it together in this, in this final you know, push to take the promised land, I feel bad for God. Because once again, they can't do it. And, and I, I'm somebody who these days, you know me, I change every year in relationship to the text. But these days, I tend to feel like this is not a punishment necessarily. This, I, I know I read it that way earlier. You want to die in the desert? Done. Um, but I really think on some level, God finally, finally gets it that it's God that needs to change. God needs to quit believing that this people can do it. God needs to accept who this generation is. They are simply too broken by the experience of 400 years of slavery. They are simply not able to do it. And to leave that alone, why do I keep expecting from something from them that they absolutely cannot deliver clearly? And so God says, okay, I get it. This, this generation is going to live in the desert. And they'll die in the desert because they can't do it. And why would I keep pushing them to do something they clearly cannot do? And their children will be the ones who, you know, I will stay with them. I'll be with them and, and we'll bring them into the promised land. And Caleb and Joshua do that with God. They bring the people into the promised land. We don't see that at the end of Torah because Torah is about the journey. Torah ends with Moshe looking at the promised land right from, from the other side of the Jordan. Um, but if you read on, 
if you read the Hexateuch, if you read the sixth book of the Hex, the uh, first, the last, the last book of the Hexateuch is Joshua, right? So it's the, it's the uh, taking of the land. It's the conquering of the land. I'm right. struck today what kind of lesson this has for us uh, in the time of Black Lives Matter. As the Civil War ends, people talk about uh, 40 acres and a mule. And that's it for these people who were slaves for yay long. And uh, so that percolates through to today to where the problem is that there's uh, continues to be, uh, you know, racism uh, that underlies all our thoughts because we're still, you know, thinking about the time when there's 40 acres and a mule and things went to pieces. Right. Thank you. Bob. Uh, Gorin, Bob Gorin. You have to unmute, though. Um, well, <clears throat> for the first time, so we've, we've talked about this years <laughs> for years. For the first time, I feel a little better. I liked your, your la the last place you went because the reason I nodded my head at the beginning is <clears throat> my sense has always been, wait a minute. You don't send chieftains out to scout the land that you know you're going to have to conquer. And so, you know, I'm, I'm say, I've always said to myself, <clears throat> let's go back to leaving <clears throat> Egypt. I forgot the lines exactly, but it was to the point that you gird your loins and you put your sword on. And, you know, you, so the departure was, we're going to have to fight our, fight our way out of here. That was the language that was used, as I recall it. And it turned out to be so. And, God did some good things and all, all, it all worked out. So I said to myself, wait a minute, um, how, what's going on here? Is God just setting this up by saying, send the chiefs out there? Uh, because he knows and the people have been told over and over and seemed to react as though they were going to have to fight for this not just have everything given to them. So I've just wrestled with this again and again. So I sort of like uh, the approach you just brought to it, that finally God realized that, well, <clears throat> uh, we need plan B. <laughs> so right? thank you. Right. Sure. I just, I mean, I don't send the chiefs out. To scout a land, you're going to have to fight your way into. That I mean, you you send you send your military guys out to take a look. You can send a couple of other guys who know about agriculture too, but don't go send the bosses out. <laughs> okay, Bert, and then David. I was going to say this. This strikes me as part of God's frustration at God's original decision in the Garden of Eden yeah. to give human beings free will. And in, in this sense, the, the vision of God in Torah is very, very human. Because later in Noah, God says, oh, my God, what did I do? I thought I was making these great people, and they built the Tower of Babel, and I've got to destroy everybody and start all over again. And uh, I find God's reaction here, which is very quick and very mad and not very understanding and not very compassionate, as you said, then done with it. You know, you don't want you want to die here? Fine, you're dead. Uh, again, to be part of us projecting on God a lot of human qualities and not so much seeing God as all-knowing and all-powerful, but as maybe most powerful, maybe most knowing, but nevertheless having some of the same kind of problems that human beings have of not always doing the right thing or sometimes making mistakes. God... God created us in God's image and we returned the favor. <laughs> yes, we did. Right. <laughs> so, uh, all right, David, where'd he go? David Russo? Amy, uh, in, throughout the year and the last past years, and I'm thinking what Bob said and old Bob's, <clears throat> most of the time when God's confronted by um, Jews that complain, the bitch, the moan, <clears throat> The reaction is pretty violent. 
Is what you're saying, are we about to, in Numbers and Deuteronomy, find a new God, a God that is leading regular people with regular sins and regular weakness into a different time, a different land? <clears throat> That's a really interesting question. Um, you know, what, what changes in God what changes going in forward and what changes in the people, right? So... Um, that unfortunately, God isn't 100% correct in this assessment because it turns out that the next generation is, guess what? Human, right? So poor God, like, has great hopes for this next generation, as does Moshe, and guess what? They turn out to be human beings too. Um, but I think, uh, but what's interesting is God isn't always responding with anger when they complain. Right there seems to be elements that trigger a divine response of anger. So the rabbis are always trying to figure out why is God angry here. One time they asked for quail, and God brought quail. The next time they the next time they ask for quail and they complain, God says, "You're going to get it till it's coming out of your nostrils." One time they don't have water, God says, "Talk to the rock," and the rock brings forth water. I mean, hit the rock, and the rock brings forth water. The next time. Right? They complain about water and Moshe strikes the rock. God flips out. So that's why they're always looking for the rabbis. What, what is it that made God so angry here? Because God doesn't always get angry with their complaining. Sometimes God seems to get it and be the compassionate parent. So, um, so, so we have to kind of look at each situation of complaining to figure out what's, go, what's the dynamic of the relationship that has God react, react so, so strongly. Um, but in general, yeah, I think God, God expects a little less in some ways, but also is disappointed, right, with, with this next generation as well, with us, right? Like, um, and so I, I want to go to us. Let's go to us. Did I lose you all? Are you still there? You're we're all okay. here. Okay, good. Uh, your your pictures all went away completely. Okay. <laughs> so uh, it scared me. I don't like being alone without you. All right. So um, yeah, so that's a, I want to close with that if we get that far. Okay. Here's Cantor Julie Newman from IJS. Um, I mean, teaching for IJS this week. Um, I love this interpretation. She says, send yourself. Shlach lecha really means send yourself extend yourself and that this whole parsha this whole story is about the capacity to perceive god says to moshe send a person of stature from each tribe right um and they're supposed to report what they see what they perceive and she talks about meditation and she talks about practice as being um scouting out our own inner landscape and that this command that Moshe gives is really about observing intentionally, observing on purpose, and observing, in our case, when we're talking about mindfulness practice, non-judgmentally. Just assess, scout. And then remember, um, they, you know, one of the directions they're given is mahi. Go find out mahi. What is it? What? This is the task, right, of all of our spiritual work to bring real inquiry, friendly curiosity, loving attention to whatever arises in the moment, to observe as clearly as possible what makes up our inner landscape in the moment, because our power to perceive changes from moment to moment. So, ma, what is it? To try to objectively, with inquiry and curiosity and loving attention, to try to ask what is it that's arising in this moment? Not about how afraid I am of what it might be. Not about how much I hate how it feels in my body. Not, I hope I'm feeling love and blah, blah, blah. Just really with open, curious, loving attention, can we just attend to what's rising in this moment? That's what this Parsha, the spiritual message of this Parsha is coming to teach. That can we get our judgments off of everything? And just mahi, what actually is it that's arising in the moment? And we have to do that every moment because our perception and our power to perceive changes from moment to moment. 
So the scouts come back, as we know, with very different reports, two very different perspectives. All right, she goes to the name of one of them. I thought this was fascinating. I've never heard this before. She, I don't know where she got this teaching, but that one of the scouts, we skipped over the names of the 10. One of them is named, apparently, Shamua ben Zakur. Shamua should already sound familiar to you. Shamua, Shin, Mem, Ayin, right? The root, Shema, the root of Shema. Shin, Mem, Ayin, to listen, to hear. And Zakur, we know, is about memory. And she says, this is an aspect of us, Shamua ben Zakur. What is that aspect? The aspect in us that is uh, listening always, that is hearing always out of memory. Perception as coming from hearing the past, often a traumatic past, which narrows our perception. Um, She was talking, I was typing. So you can tell uh, how fast I was having to try to type to, to take down notes from what she was teaching. So hearing the past, often a traumatic past, narrows our perception of the present and the future. Um, it's, it's a limited capacity to see what's around us, to see the truth of the situation. It's intending to be protective, and maybe that was once useful and necessary. But so often now, it only covers up what is true. Like it keeps us from perceiving what's actually true. So these, this grown child, Shamua ben Zahor, this grown child of slavery, lives with the experience of oppression and the effects of suffering. Wrong spelling there. The self-protection that lives on in his habits of thought, of seeing danger exaggerated, of seeing possibility constricted, responding to the effects of living with the daily hostility of oppression in Egypt. These effects, she says, are also written in the body, in our blood pressure, in our heart health. And she went a little bit into Black Lives Matter and COVID um, in terms of right how, how the body carries um, having been oppressed. Um, and having been, you know, not given access to the kinds of uh, medical care and preventive care and knowledge about preventive care that, uh, that people of privilege have. Then she says, who does the positive report come from? The, the positive report comes from Kalev Ben Yefune, completely opposite perspective, per- completely opposite way of perceiving the same exact set of facts. Kalev Ben Yefune. Lev is in his name, Kalev, right? Like the heart, Kalev, like the heart. Ben Yefune, I did not know this, that Yefune uh, means uh, uh, cleared off, cleaned away. So she says Kalev brings to the situation balanced knowing that our heart is in the center of our body, right, the center of our chest, our heart is in the center. And if you look at the sphira, the map of the sphira, the spherotic tree, um, the heart is also in the middle between uh, chesed and gevura, this idea of balanced knowing, bringing together mind and heart, mind and body, because we know from studying Torah that according to biblical uh, teaching, that the heart is the seat of knowledge and wisdom. So it's mind and heart, mind and body, discernment that is about equanimity, to see what there, what's there, even when what we're seeing is uncomfortable, but without exaggerating it, without overreacting, without getting all panicked, without flipping out, right? To just see what's there, even if what we're seeing is uncomfortable. And this is, of course, the practice of mindfulness, um, that we sit with what is, with what comes up, without needing to like get all involved in it. We're called to see ourselves with clarity and our part in systems with clarity, right? If we're talking about what's happening, right, in our, in our society today. And like I said, yefuna, she says, means cleaned off, cleared away, a sense of discernment that's not clouded by habitual thought, a more expansive perception. She says, Shamua and Kalev saw the same thing, came back with two different reports. One came back with a hearing, a perception born of memory, and the other uh, with a heart, heard from a heart uh, and a perspective born of clarity. We are both. Our perception and 
no idea what that word is. Capacity uh, for perception is always changing. I mean, it fluctuates uh, between these two poles, between these two perspectives all the time. Our hearing, our perceiving that comes out of our habitual fear are usually out of pain, out of trauma and suffering. And our ability to perceive that comes out of being uh, balanced, a really balanced discernment between heart and mind uh, an ability to just face what is, to see the truth. And as Pima Chodron, that amazing nun who teaches um, mindfulness practice, um, she, she says that we, can we face what is to see the truth as it is and hold our seats. That's the work of meditation, of mindfulness practice, facing what arises in the moment. And, and I don't think it's just about meditation practice. I'm just bringing that to you as a spiritual teaching, but, but it's about everything. Can we perceive what is the truth and really hold like our perspectives open and with great curiosity and, and, um, and perceive what is and not flip, even if it's uncomfortable, that we can tolerate that discomfort, that we can tolerate um, holding what is and holding the truth. So two completely different perspectives, we bounce back and forth between them. The real work of becoming a mature, responsible adult, I believe, is a lot about noticing when that's happening. It's not about we're not going to do it anymore because now we're grownups and we've done our work and we've been in therapy and it's... That, that's not it. That's not the goal. The goal is to know when we're going to Shamua Ben Zahor, when we're hearing out of that perspective or perceiving out of that perspective, and when and how to move ourselves more into a Kalev Ben Yefune uh, way of perceiving um, what's going on. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.